Amen. Awesome. Well, good morning. Uh, like I said, or say every week, we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. We are in our Advent series right now, a series leading up to Christmas, celebrating Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God with us. And we're doing that by walking through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, looking at times where we see God make His presence dwell with man in a unique way. Um, You might say, I said last week, we're almost doing a tour of the temples. Where are the different places where we see God dwell with man? Last week we looked at the garden, and this week we're looking at the tabernacle. We're going to be spending all of our time in the book of Exodus today. So start opening up your Bibles in that direction. Uh, One more uh, matter of of, uh, practical detail for us as a church. Christmas Eve, December 24th, Uh, We are planning to meet from 6 to 7 o'clock, and we're hoping to do that at Deer Run Lodge uh, once again at at Camp Brookwoods. So if you're free, please do join us. This is a great time to bring friends, people who maybe call themselves Christians but don't have a church. Maybe those who maybe are culturally are interested in finding a a church uh, on Christmas Eve, but at no other point, bring them along. They're going to hear the gospel. So join us there at at Deer Run Lodge. We're still confirming that for sure. I'll see you there unless you hear otherwise, okay? So so Christmas Eve, Deer Run Lodge from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. That's the plan. Now this year, Christmas, December 25th, is a Sunday. And so this year, we're not actually going to be meeting for church on that Sunday morning. And that's for a number of reasons, including uh, just the fact that we don't have a building, right, that we can just use at any time. So we're not going to be meeting for church on Sunday morning. Rather, what we're going to be doing is going to be sending out a short Christmas devotional so that you and your family uh, can gather together and we'll read through the Christmas story from the book of Luke. We'll do a meditation on that Christmas story relatively shortly um, and uh, lead a time of of prayer as we turn our hearts to worship on Christmas morning. Um, So that's what's going on for Christmas this year. But for now, we're back in our Advent series, God with us. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give this time to you. May your eternal truth shape us, encourage us, challenge us. Do the work in us, Lord, that you want to do through your word. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right, so April 12th, 2009, uh, it was Easter morning, and I was in Rome. Uh, It was just by chance that I was on, in Rome on Easter morning, but because I was there, I felt like I couldn't not do this, uh, but I went to St. Peter's Square. Um, that's the, the big square outside of the Vatican to see the Pope speak, and it was a, it was a fascinating thing to do. Uh, I'm not personally Catholic, right, and so for me, hearing the Pope speak, seeing him just about 700 feet away, um, there wasn't a spiritual significance there for me. I'm not Catholic. I, I and also, I couldn't understand him, <laughs> so uh, it wasn't spiritually significant for me. Uh, but obviously, I was surrounded by a lot of people who were Catholics, um, who did believe that the Pope has a spiritually significant role in the church and in the world. And so for them, it wasn't just merely a, a matter of cultural significance. This was spiritually significant for them. And it's not hard to see why. This is the man in their eyes who holds the keys to heaven, who's in direct succession to Peter, who's the head of the church, the representative of Christ on earth. And so what was for me just 
a matter of cultural fascination for them was deeply, deeply spiritual. Because the representative of Christ, in their eyes, was in their midst, right there, right? 700 feet away. When we think about Islam, I'm not comparing uh, Catholicism to Islam at all, but I'm saying in the Islam, Islamic faith, uh, there's this black cube you probably know about. It's called the Kaaba, Kaaba. And at the Kaaba, in the eastern corner, there's a rock, a black stone. Um, so every single day, Muslims all over the world pray towards Mecca. And when they do, what they're doing is they're praying towards that box, that stone. It's the most spiritually significant site in the entire Muslim world. And one time in every Muslim's life, every Muslim has to take a trip to Mecca to go visit that mosque, visit that box, and touch and kiss that stone. And the reason why they do that is because they believe that that stone descended from heaven at the beginning of time, and that on the last day, that stone will sprout eyes and will sprout a mouth and will bear witness to all those who have traveled to touch it. And so it's, it's an interesting thing because I've never, never been to Mecca, um, but if you were to go to Mecca, you would see something really interesting but very understandable as well. Muslims lingering at that black stone. Two billion Muslims in this world want to go and touch that black stone, to go and kiss it. You would think it would have to be a pretty efficient process, but understandably, they want to linger. They want to be around it. They want to touch it. They take off their headscarves and rub it on the stone so they can bring that with them as a spiritual talisman, a spiritual uh, reminder for them. And that shouldn't be a surprise for us that for them, that's deeply spiritual. They believe that this is a stone that came from heaven, from the presence of Allah, and that it's in their midst. We can understand the spiritual significance of being in the presence of of something holy. And so how much more significant to be in the presence of the Holy One, right? The God of heaven and earth. We as, as Protestant Christians, and all, all Christians actually, we, we long for the nearness of God, right? We, just think about what you pray when you're afraid, or maybe when you're, when you're in pain, when you're suffering. We pray that God would be near to us, we pray that he would give us comfort, that he would give us strength. We do the same thing when other people are struggling or, or, or in pain. We pray that God would be near to them, would give them strength. And we're not, when we're praying that, we're not, of course, saying that he's not already there. We know, we believe that God is in all places, but what we're asking is that his sustaining strength and comfort would be felt by that person in that time and in that place. We as Christians, we long for the nearness of God. And so this morning, as we continue this story of looking at God's presence with man in the Bible, we're going to go back to the garden and start from there to look at places and times where God's presence truly does dwell with man. Because in the beginning, God created everything, and everything was perfect. He created the world, he created this land called Eden, and in Eden, a garden. And he put man there to work it and to keep it. He dwelt together with man in their midst in that garden. However, man failed to guard the garden. Man sinned, and because of his sin, God cast him and Adam and Eve out of the garden to the east, and he put a cherubim, an angel there, to guard man's way back to the garden, back to the presence of God. But in the mercy of God, God wasn't done with his creation, and he wasn't done with mankind. 
Rather, what he did was he chose a people for himself, Abraham and his descendants, through whom he would bring blessings to the world. That's what we talked about last, well, actually, we saw it before that, but that's what we see in Genesis. By the time we come to the end of the book of Genesis, moving into the book of Exodus, what we see is that these blessing bringers, the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, seem to be anything but blessed. They're enslaved in Egypt, right? And in Exodus chapter 2, this is what we read, that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God heard, and he sent a man named Moses, and he gave Moses this message, and he spoke it in Exodus chapter 6. This is what God says. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And if you know the story, that's exactly what God did. God in power came and delivered the people of Israel from the most powerful nation in the entire world. He overpowered them. We also see that he, in a pillar of smoke and fire, came and personally led them out of slavery into the wilderness, uh, through the Red Sea, and to, to Mount Sinai. We also see that there at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with them, a special, unique relationship with them. After all, he says in verse 7 of chapter 6, I take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And just like God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden, now God is going to dwell with Israel in their midst. However, it's going to look really different. It's not going to look quite the same, right? For Adam and Eve, it seemed that God was in their presence in the way that he actually walked with them and, and, and spoke with them. However, because of sin, the way that he actually interacts with his people is going to look, like I said, different. Oh, because a holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people. And so God had a plan, a way that he could dwell with his people in a way that wouldn't uh, destroy them with his holiness. You might think of this as the first ever church building campaign, and we see it in Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. And then let them make me, this is verse 8 now, a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. We jump forward to chapter 29, and God continues saying, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Now listen to this part. And I will dwell among the people of Israel. And will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell with them. Among them. I am the Lord their God. So they got, gather contributions. Donations. From the people of Israel. Wood, stones, metals, fabrics, threads. And they build the sanctuary uh, that we call the tabernacle. It's, it's a tent. 
A place where God could make his presence dwell with them in a unique way. And when God said to Moses that they shall make it exactly as I show you, uh, he meant it. Because for 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, God goes into excruciating detail about exactly what that tabernacle is supposed to look like. He lays out all the details, and this is some tent. <laughs> like, I'm not going to read through all the details for us this morning, but what I want to do is I want to take you on a quick walking tour of it. I'll put a picture up here on the screen of the entire tabernacle complex. This is the courtyard and the tent of meeting and the Holy of Holies all, all boiled down into one. So imagine that you're walking to the temp- uh, tabernacle and you enter through those curtains on the eastern side into the courtyard. You pass by the altar where sacrifices are made for the sins of your nation. You pass by that basin uh, where, that the priests use for washing, and you pass by the priests themselves who are serving and ministering in the temple and kavar guarding the temple. Then you come to another set of curtains, the curtains of the tent themselves. Pulling back those curtains and entering in, what you can, you're going to find is a, is a room of elaborate decoration and intricate detail. In that room, you find a golden candle stand composed of branches and, and blossoms. You find a, a gold table with bread on it. You find an altar of incense and gold everywhere. But the thing I most want to point out is that when you are in that room and you look straight ahead, you see another set of curtains, a third set of curtains. And there's something different about that set of curtains. On that set of curtains, there are cherubim. There's angels on that set of curtains, embroidered in intricate detail. And you don't go any further. You stop right there. If you're lucky enough to be a priest. <laughs> Late in the 19th century, there was a man named, named Wallace Clement Sabine. He was a Bostonian. Uh, probably not many of us have heard of him. He was a physicist who founded the field of study called architectural acoustics. So in other words, his whole job was to figure out how rooms worked, how sound bounced off different walls and different elements of a room, and to figure out how you can deaden the sound. The thing that he's most well known for is helping with the construction of the Boston Symphony Hall. Uh, He figured out how best to help the music bounce around that room in a way that would be most pleasantly heard uh, by the people who showed up to hear the symphony play. Because for musicians, you want to hear the exact notes. You don't want to hear echo in the room when you're listening to the symphony. Echo is bad for music. You want to hear the notes more clearly. But here's a fun fact about the Bible. The Bible has terrible acoustics. When you read the Bible, you hear echoes everywhere. And you don't want to deaden the echoes of the Bible. You want to look for the echoes of the Bible. You want to find the places where things that you heard before in the Bible bounce off a wall and come back to you. And when we look at this picture of the tabernacle, we see echoes, don't we? We see echoes of the garden all over the place. Just think about it for a minute. We, see, we know that in the garden at the beginning, God created the world, he created the land of Eden, and he put a garden in Eden where God would make his presence dwell. And in this courtyard, we have a courtyard a holy place, the tent of meeting, and then a most holy place where God makes his presence dwell. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve were put there to work it, to care for it, and to keep it, shamar, protect it. And now the priests are here working in the temple and shamar, keeping, protecting it. 
as it says in Numbers chapter 18. Adam and Eve were driven out of God's presence to the east, and now to enter God's presence, you enter from the east. Cherubim are placed guarding the way to the garden where God's presence dwells, and here in the tabernacle, cherubim are bordered on this this curtain guarding the way into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwells. Do you see the echoes? Echoes of the garden. Echoes of Eden. This is a new place where God's going to make His presence dwell with His people. And so finally, after all these details are shared and after all this description is is given in the book of Exodus, we come to Exodus chapter 40, verse 33, which in many ways is the climax, the culmination of everything we've been reading. I'm going to read 33 through 38 here. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, everywhere the cloud, every, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Could you imagine what that would be like? I mean, just put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You just saw this God overcome the most powerful empire in the world. You saw his power on display. sending plagues, blotting out the sun. We saw him part the Red Sea and lead you through. You saw him as a pillar of fire and smoke. And then you saw him for the better part of a year up on top of a mountain as a cloud. Up there in in flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. He was up there and now he's going to come and camp in your midst, live in your presence right in the middle, middle of the place where you are to dwell with you. I mean, how would you feel about that? How would, what would it do to your heart to see that God come and dwell in your midst and go with you wherever you went? I'll answer for myself. This isn't in the Bible. This is just my own imagining. What would it be like? I'm sure it would stir a sense of awe and trembling in me <laughs> that the almighty, powerful God, creator of the universe, would be in our midst. That would, that would make me tremble with fear and joy. I'm sure it would also feel like a privilege and an honor that he would choose me to dwell amongst, right? After all, there was nothing, humanly speaking, any better about Israel than any other nation. Moses actually says that himself in chapter 33. It's interesting. He says, is it not, is it not in your going with us, God, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? The only thing that makes us special, he's saying, is the fact that you're with us. Thank you, God. It's a privilege. And I'm sure I wouldn't only feel awe and the privilege of that, but I'd also feel a lot of hope. Because as you know, these, or you may know, these Israelites are about to go into the promised land, which means that there's, there's a fight on the horizon. They're about to go up against other nations as they go. And the God who just took on the Egyptians... You want him on your side. 
It would give you so much hope to know that the God of the universe was on your side dwelling with you. Because, man, if that, if that God could take Egypt, he could take anybody. And so as the cloud covered the tent, as the glory filled the tent, I'm sure they felt awe. I'm sure they felt privileged. I'm sure they felt hope. That this God would choose to dwell in their midst as their God, he their people. And yet there was still this barrier, right? Yeah, he was in the midst. Yeah, he was in the tent. But my goodness, there was still sin that made it really hard for the people of Israel to actually interact with and have relationship with this God. Our sin prevents a holy God from truly dwelling amongst holy people. Yes, the tent was in their camp, yet no Israelite could just freely waltz into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest, and only once a year, and only offering a whole host of sacrifices and doing a whole host of ceremonies to deal with his own sin and for the sins of the people, could he actually enter into the holy place, the holy of holies, to see God? When I think about this, I, I, almost, I think about the season of COVID. You know, when we were meeting together, we were all in one place, and then we couldn't be together. And so we made a way to see one another, right? We used Zoom. We, we live-streamed things. We couldn't go to concerts, so music, musicians started live-streaming little shows from their living room. We couldn't go to museums, so we came up with virtual tours. Churches couldn't meet, so we started doing more things online. And those things were great because we could interact, yet the barrier remained. It wasn't the same. We weren't truly together in one place. It's the same here. God was with them in their midst, yet there was a barrier between them. These curtains, these courtyards, this courtyard. He was with them, but there was still, still this barrier. And this is the way it was throughout all of their journeys. Wherever they went, God was with them. But still, there was this barrier. Now, remember how the Bible has really bad acoustics? It's, a, it's an echoey book. Um, very echoey. But when we look at this passage, the story of the Egyptians coming out of Egypt, going into the wilderness making a, a covenant with their God and God dwelling with them. Our story, Christian, is an echo of that story. The entire thing. Because we were slaves, not to Egypt, not to Pharaoh. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to death. And when we cried out to rest for rescue, rescue from our slavery, God heard and God promised us the same thing he promised them, saying, I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Only he didn't rescue us with a show of power. He rescued us with a show of weakness and humility. He didn't blot out the sun. Rather, he sent his son. And we have no system of ceremonies and sacrifices to deal with our sin because Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He's the one who came to deal with our sin. He died in our place on the cross as our substitute, removing our sin and setting us free from our bondage. 
We don't have a curtain between us and God guarding our way to him because Jesus' death, when he died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew 27 tells us. And we don't have a system of priests because Jesus is our high priest, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. By faith in Jesus Christ, he led us out, not of Egypt, with a pillar of fire and smoke, but he led us out from the clutches of sin and death by his resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, and we follow by faith. In redeeming us, we enter into a new covenant with him, and he says of us that we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's 1 Peter 2, 9 of us. Sounds very echoey. He makes his presence dwell with us, Jesus says in John 14, that the spirit of truth dwells with you and will be in you. Be free, the God of the universe lives in us. Does that stir awe in you? God sought you out and called you purely by his grace. Are you privileged by that? Do you feel the privilege of that? He is near to you, and he gives you comfort. He gives you strength. Do you feel the hope of that? I imagine God's presence in the tent would stir awe and privilege and hope in them, but man, how, how much more for us? Because for those who trust in Jesus Christ, the curtains are wide open. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence. Because we know we can. For what purpose? That we may receive mercy and find grace to find, uh, grace to help in time of need. So, so, so Christian. You don't have to go anywhere to go into the presence of God, right? God has come to us. We don't have to go to a temple. You are temples. God made his presence to dwell in you by faith. And so with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find peace to help in time of need. Because just like the Israelites, we need that message of hope, right? We all have battles on, her, on our horizons. In fact, we, we might have battles right, right now. Things that we're struggling with, the, the trials of this world. What does your time of need look like right now? I'll, I'll, share, I'll share with you my time of need right now, what it looks like for me. Uh, yesterday, a friend of mine in town passed away, um, and it was all very sudden. Um, and Olivia and I were, were heartbroken, and we're, we're spending a lot of time with his family. Right now, where, where do we find grace uh, to help in time of need? How, where, do we, where do we find what we need in our grief and as we minister to the family? We need a God of all comfort, right? We need to look to the God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any afflictions, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Right now, we find help in grief and strength to serve by drawing near to the throne of grace. That's our current need. What's your current need? Maybe maybe right now you're just very aware of your sin. Maybe you're feeling conviction over something. Maybe you're feeling the guilt and shame that accompanies sin. Where do you find grace to help you in your time of need? I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, and if you're struggling with conviction, if you're struggling with guilt, if you're struggling with shame, then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because he who washed you whiter than snow has forgiven you and his arms are wide open. Run to him. (laughs) He will receive you. He will receive you and comfort you. And if you're not a believer, then turn from your sin. Run to him for grace and forgiveness because he delights to give it 